Hey everyone, and welcome to episode five of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters, coming to you as always from my lovely home office in Birmingham. Uh, today, my guest is horror author Andy Davidson. Uh, his debut novel, In the Valley of the Sun, was a finalist for the 2017 Brahm Stroker Award for Superior Achievement in a First Novel. Uh, this is Horror's Novel of the Year, a 2018 Silver Falcon Award, and a 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival's First Book Award. Uh, his second novel, The Boatman's Daughter, is coming out February 11th of 2020 from MCB FSG Originals. Uh, he holds an MFA in fiction from the University of Mississippi. He was born and raised in Arkansas, and he currently makes his home in Georgia where he teaches college English. He lives with his wife and a bunch of unruly cats. But uh, without further ado, Andy Davidson. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on. I know uh, it's been a, I guess, a short time coming since we we first officially met at the Noir event uh, back in uh, November. Right, that was a lot of fun. Yeah, that was that was an unexpected reading that night. Yeah. For me. I was coming as a as a as an audience member and and got asked at the last minute to read. So that was kind of fun. Yeah. So good thing you brought a copy of the boatman's daughter, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I know. Uh, I know. I think it was like the day before or, or even maybe even close to the day of you had reached out to me and you're like, Hey, is this still a thing? And I'm like, Oh, absolutely. I think they just like messed up the date. And I was like, you'd come. And then all of a sudden, you know, you're hanging out with, with Jeff and, uh, and your wife and David Powell and Len Hansen. And I was like, all right, you know, this, this is pretty great. And then all of a sudden you're like, I was also a late addition to read. I was like, okay, even better. Why not? You know? <laughs> so but but that, yeah, that was a really cool event too, because I got to meet, you know, people I hadn't met before. Um, uh, one of those folks was Nathan Ballingrud and, um, you know, he's been on my list of people I want to connect with. So that was really cool too. like his work a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, of course, McCammon was there and then uh, you got, mm -hmm. uh, you know, John, a.k.a. Hank Early there. I mean, it's, it was a it was a pretty fantastic lineup. And I was talking to I was talking to John after and he mentioned something about trying to do another one in the spring. So oh, wow. that'd be that'd be pretty great, to, you know, especially now that there's a little bit more of an audience, I guess, for it. It should be mm -hmm. a bigger turnout next year. So if hopefully you, know, you guys can can come back and, and do another reading. That'd be great. So. Yeah, that'd be fun. It was an amazing audience. The turnout for this one was fantastic. Yeah, I was I was talking to uh, to Jeff about it, and he had mentioned that it was maybe one of the biggest turnouts he'd ever seen in an event like that. Um, he said usually wow. it's just like the coffee the coffee bar staff are <laughs> yeah. usually the ones that are there <laughs> listening. So, but uh, but yeah, for sure, I, I I thought it was a fantastic event, and it was great, you know, meeting all you guys, and uh, you know, obviously listening to you guys talk a little bit about your, your current stuff and, and what's up, what's coming up. So, um, but yeah, just, for, just first off, um, you doing all right today. Did you, did you have a pretty good day today? Yeah, it's been a busy day. We, we just got back from a few days in, um, Florida, sort of our annual, uh, Christmas trip to Disney world that coincides with the release of a star Wars film. So, um, today was kind of a busy day of taking care of things that needed to be taken care of, you know, when you get back into town, but yeah, pretty good. Yeah. So I, um, obviously I'd seen a bunch of pictures that you and your wife posted from your, from your <laughs> trip and it was very, uh, Star Wars central, <laughs> centrally located, I guess. Uh, yeah, so we're, go ahead. we're, um, happily married Star Wars fans. My <laughs> wife was, uh, 10 years old when the first film came out in 1977. And of course, the first time I saw the first movie was uh, on a, a VHS tape that my uncle had recorded for me when the, sh when the film aired on HBO. So I, you know, for years I thought the HBO logo zooming in, you know, from outer space was actually part of the film. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess so. Uh, so I haven't obviously been down there since uh, they brought all the Star Wars stuff. I mean, it, it looked pretty fantastic uh, just based on the pictures. Um, and I've heard that I guess the the two rides they have out now, um, but I heard that the new one is phenomenal. Yeah, it was incredible. It's one of the most complicated um, boarding procedures for a ride I've ever encountered, but but it's it's really worth it. Like. Um, 
the ride itself takes about 20 minutes, the rise of the resistance. And, um, it's a multi-stage ride, like just going through the line is sort of part of helping to craft the narrative. You're, you're in a, uh, a resistance base and then you're taken into a staging area and someone, um, that, you know, not to give anything away if anybody wants to go on the ride, but, you know, a very prominent person in the new Star Wars trilogy uh, gives you your your mission. And, and then you're taken to another stage where you actually walk out into the real world and you can see and, uh, there's an X-Wing fighter there and you board a transport and it just it goes from there and you end up on a Star Destroyer and you're being pursued by Kylo Ren. And it's just the most amazing thing. Um, but the boarding procedure for it is like they only give out so many groups a day. I think they have about 120 boarding groups is what they call it. And I don't know how many people actually can fit into a boarding group, but um, you have to sign up with your phone through, through an app. Um, (laughs) And you can only sign up for it once you get into the park through the ticket stand. So it's kind of this weird thing where you have to get to the park super early and join, you know, hundreds of other people in line. And once you get through, you see all of these people that have come through the line into the park immediately whipping out their phones and, and, and clicking and trying to get spots on this ride. And the, the people that work at Disney are actually yelling at people, please proceed into the park. Do not stop here to, <laughs> to uh, join the ride, you'll get a better signal further in the park, which is really just their way of saying, you know, please don't jam up traffic. (laughs) Right. Right. So, but yeah, it it was, it was fun. It was worth it. And the, of course the, the galaxy's edge uh, part of that park is pretty phenomenal in terms, in terms of the details, you know, I mean, if your listeners don't care about Star Wars, I'm sure I'm already losing people. <laughs> I could talk for an hour or more just about how amazing that park is and and that experience. So it's pretty great. Well, I mean, this is a science fiction and fantasy kind of centric podcast. So you've, oh, you've probably got a lot of ears <laughs> turned towards you, I guess. <laughs> well, well, you never know. Star Wars is a funny thing these days. We, um, I've, I've encountered people, you know, it's Christmas. So you go into stores and you, you know, you know like well, I was in GameStop or something buying a, a pop Funko and as a present. And the guy just sort of spontaneously said, as he was checking me out, um, checking out the, the purchase, he said, um, yeah, I didn't like the last Jedi and proceeded to tell me why he didn't like it. <laughs> And just, 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 you know, recently we met someone who informed us about how the whole new trilogy over what was to be a kind of friendly lunch, I think was a, you know, just a terrible bit of storytelling. See, so I'm very cautious about star Wars, especially this time of year, because, you know, it's seems to be something people are eager to tell others who love it. Why it's not good. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you've been on social media any time in the past few days and seen like all the Forbes articles about how terrible the new movie is and right. how like this new trilogy is just complete and utter garbage and how it's like targeted at fans but it's not for fans. It's like it's the dumbest like bit of stuff. I'm like, you either like it or you don't and then move on. Like, right. <laughs> like the movie's made. They're not gonna remake it. It's like it's like all the people that complained about the last season of Game of Thrones. Like you can be mad about it, but it doesn't change anything. <laughs> well, this is all this is a weird part of of a larger phenomenon in the world that I think the internet's kind of given birth to, which is this this impulse toward um, I guess everyone has an opinion and everyone shares that opinion freely, no matter what the social consequences of of sharing that opinion might be nobody is very sensitive anymore about um, stepping on the things that people love or care about. I mean, I I think back to like a couple of Christmases ago, we were buying some sort of star Wars uh, item in, in a target somewhere, you know, I think we were visiting my in-laws and um, again, it was the person at the register checking us out she kind of just made this flippant comment like 
and I never saw Star Wars. I don't like Star Wars. Like, and it, it, it just like apropos of nothing, like it wasn't even necessary. <laughs> we weren't asking her, what did you think of Star Wars? So there's right. this strange thing, like with fandoms in general, I think and Game of Thrones is a good example too, of everyone has an opinion about it and everyone wants to argue about it. All the time. <laughs> yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And you're right. I mean, it's one of those things like you can't even like wear a Star Wars shirt, like out without somebody going, Oh gosh, Star Wars. Didn't you just hate that last movie? It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah. actually I haven't seen it yet. Thank you very much. Or something, you know, it's, but yeah, you're, I mean, you're right. Everybody is kind of freely expresses their opinion. And if you disagree with it, then arguments ensue. So, um, that's why I just, I just try to avoid it. And I just kind of turn the other way and I just go, oh, okay, cool. I'm going to go do something else. See ya. Yeah. Well, at a certain point you have to kind of hold close to your chest, uh, and shelter the things that you love. You know, you have to protect them from people's ire and hatred. Right. <laughs> oh man. But yeah, we, we could, we could for sure talk about star Wars all day. I mean, we could sit here and talk about the Mandalorian and how we had this giant cliffhanger until tomorrow. And, uh, I think I saw that you guys were going to go see rise tomorrow. Is that right? Yeah, we got the early show. We're we're not um, late night show types, so um, we tend to take it early in the morning if we can get it. And this is like nine thirty, I think. So wow, I didn't even yeah. realize movie theaters open that early. <laughs> About one once every few years, I think. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, I think I may go try to see it this weekend, just depending on how uh, how the Christmas shoppers fare along uh, our stretch of highway. Cause uh, <laughs> trying, trying to drive anywhere this weekend's I think going to be a death sentence. So, yeah, but, um, well, cool. Well, let's, uh, let's get a little bit into, um, I guess, uh, books and life and life outside and inside of books, but basically just, uh, would you mind telling me a little bit about yourself, about growing up, um, school, kind of how, I guess your, your life path directed you into writing. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was always a kid that read, you know, read books. My parents read books to me before I could read books. And um, at a certain point, I guess I was maybe around 10 years old. It was the fifth grade. I think I I started realizing that I wanted to do this. Like I wanted to tell stories instead of just read them. So I would start, I started writing things in notebooks and um, I had a teacher that encouraged us every morning to write and um and she she called it journaling and we had the opportunity at the end of maybe a 20 minute kind of silent period of writing to share what we had written i was always too shy to do it um this kid in front of me um uh, he decided he would grab my notebook and and take it up front and read it because i guess he liked what i had written so he did and he butchered it he did such a terrible job (laughs) of reading this little story I had written about a worm who wears a hat and drives a car and gets into adventures that, um, uh, I decided, well, okay, if if this has to happen again, I'm going to do it. And so the second time, um, that she called for volunteers, uh, I got up and did it. And I just noticed as I finished reading that, you know, and I, I've still got these notebooks and these are terrible stories. <laughs> <laughs> they make no sense whatsoever. How does a worm drive a car? <laughs> but um, I noticed after I finished reading it that it actually had to entertain the class, that they were listening. And that feeling was almost indescribable. I'd never had that feeling before. And I, I think that sort of spurred me to want to do this. And and, you know, you're a kid, you're 10 years old. Every writer can say, well, when I was a child, I wanted to write. And I think Max Booth um, recently wrote an article for, I want to say it was on Lit Reactor, about like 10 of the stupidest things writers say. <laughs> one of which is, I always knew from a young age I wanted to be a writer. <laughs> so I, you know, I, yeah, Max is right. But that's true. It's the truth. And so, um uh, of course, you know, there's a big difference in, in doing it professionally and doing it as a 10 year old and, and having people like what you write and who are also 10 year olds. So, um, 
you know, you go through phases as a kid. I went through an animator phase where I wanted to work at Disney as an animator. I went through a, 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 a director phase. I wanted to be a movie director. Um, but writing was always there. And I went to college. I was an English major. I went to kind of a, a private school that was about 45 minutes from home. I didn't go far. I was still in South Arkansas. It was a very good school, and um, I had really great teachers, wonderful English teachers who cultivated further that sense of creativity. And and I guess um, that was really what drove me on to grad school and, and at the University of Mississippi. And I was a very good student, so I was I knew that being a student was something I could do and do well. And I knew that um, my dad had always said, well, if you want to be a writer, and he was a teacher, he was an English teacher. If you want to be a writer, he said, you've got to have a job. You've got to have something to fall back on. And so I went to school, to graduate school, with the intention of getting an MFA that would prepare me to teach. And I think Ole Miss's program was very good in that respect. Of course, what they don't tell you about graduate school and MFA programs is once you get out of them, um, you may not ever want to write again (laughs) (laughs) because they, they burn you out on, on, on that craft. And, and, and it's not true for everybody, but for me, it certainly was that I got a job teaching online after I graduated uh, f- uh, there at the University of Mississippi, and I taught online, fully online, for three years. So I had this amazing schedule, and I and I had all this time to write, and I didn't finish a damn thing because I just was I, I had nothing more to say. I had I had never found anything to say. I I didn't have any life experience. I'd been a student all my life, and so. And I went right into teaching and I you know, probably wasted so much of my free time that I had as an online teacher, uh, staying up late and watching, you know, TV on DVD. So, um, I guess it was about 10 years later after I had moved out here, here to Georgia and gotten a job fully, you know, uh, a full-time day job as a teacher and I'd gotten married and and had lived a little bit of life that I finally had an idea or two that I thought um, maybe these are worth writing about. And I got really interested in screenwriting as a process, how to how to write a script. And I kind of self-taught um, that process uh, by reading Robert McKee and his book Story and a couple of other books and. And this was just a hobby. I didn't have any mind toward actually directing a version of these scripts or submitting them anywhere because one of the things that I kind of quickly learned about screenwriting at the time for me was that um, this was a world that I didn't fit into uh, professionally. I I read a book. I forget what it was called. Um, I think it was called How to Make a Million Dollars or something it's a very funny title. It was by the guys that wrote the night at the museum movies, oh. how to make a million dollars writing screenplays or something like that. A very cynical book about Hollywood. And I said, yep, this definitely isn't for me. I am not this kind of person. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, so that was when I took one of the scripts and I wrote it as a book. And that's ultimately the, the book that became in the Valley of the sun. Um, and so all of that was born out of a, the first book was born out of a period in my life where I was ready to, to say something. I felt like I'd finally lived in a way in our marriage and in life that I had something to say about people and relationships that wasn't just made up whole cloth. And, um, and, you know, also there were some professional experiences at the time in my day job that were not going the way I wanted them to go. And so it just became a kind of, there was an urgency to the idea of being a writer that had not been there before. I got you. I guess. I got you. Uh, and yeah. That pretty much brings us to now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, um, having just finished in the Valley of the sun, um, I kind of see the, uh, like the, the script writing 
Um, mm. and kind of the way it plays out a little bit, just, just the way I get it. Cause it kind of, not that it feels like episodic or not, but it just, it, you can kind of see like where an episode would end and begin, you know, whereas mm. a lot of books you read kind of feels like one movie, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it was, a you have a very distinct voice as far as your writing goes that I haven't experienced before. Um, and, uh, I see that, you know, your the book is compared to, you know, books by like Joe Hill and Cormac McCarthy and, and Rice. Um, but it, it's something that I haven't experienced before in a, even a, not even just a vampire kind of novel, but just, uh, just any novel in general. Um, it mm-hmm. was really easy to kind of settle into. Um, well, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's how we know. I know uh, it was originally uh, published back in 2017 with Skyhorse. Uh, I didn't right. know why. Why did they end up republishing it two years later? Um, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I know that um, I, you know. I guess we think the typical publishing route from hardback to trade paperback is usually six months to a year. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course we can see examples of how that, that varies when you have a book like Gone Girl that stays in hardback for what years. Um, and my book very <laughs> clearly was not selling as many copies as Gone Girl in hardback. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure why the two year lag though. I mean, I, uh, I think maybe they did a print run. I'm not sure if it went to a second printing, but I know that the book sold well enough to kind of keep it circulating. Okay. And um, it was doing okay. It, it it earned back its advance. And I think at that point they had decided, well, he's gotten another book. I, I'm speaking entirely hypothetically here. Um, <laughs> Yeah, because I, my assumption was that the paperback came out as a result of, you know, uh, the modest success of the hardback. Um, yeah. I, I don't know how their business model works, but um, I do know that um, I was delighted, you know, when they said they wanted to put it out in paperback and they said that they wanted a cover that was more in the horror vein that the, the publisher had felt like uh, the cover that I worked on with my editor um, for the hardback said Western more than it said horror. Um, and so I, I guess they decided that maybe the horror market was, was there and thriving and Skyhorse has a, a pretty decent horror label or they did. Um, I think it's called, um, Oh gosh, what is it? I know that Jeremy Robert, Johnson, I think, published a book with them. Uh, oh, boy. That's a good question. Or uh, was it? Um, okay, hang on. It's, it was Nick McModis's book. I am Providence came out through Nightshade. Nightshade. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. So Nightshade books, and I know Ellen Datlow had published a lot with them as well in her anthologies. So, you know, I don't know, but I'm happy they did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I mean it. I mean, unfortunately, I mean, to be honest, and unfortunately, it wasn't on my radar until the release. So, I mean, sure, you know, it, and I think that's true for a lot of people. Yeah, I, I think I think it jumped out. Win. Yeah, I mean, you know, you you see a novel come out and you go, well, that cover looks interesting, and then of course you see the stamp about the nomination, and then you get a blurb from Stephen Graham Jones on the front, but who is kind of one of my newer. Uh, like go-to authors. Um, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you've read The Only Good Indians, but man, it is so good. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. I haven't got a copy of it yet. Yeah, it's 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 phenomenal. But you know, it, I think I think it really does help when something's not really brought into a new light, but just kind of brought back into the light because you know, with it being out for two years, you kind of gain a new audience on the second release. Um, And now, especially with horror kind of making a comeback, um, you know, you're going to you're going to get those readers who are, you know, big on the bookstagram or book community, like on Twitter and stuff that, 
we'll see. Well, and they were that was a major force behind the book gaining sales for, as a as a paperback was um, Sadie Hartman, basically Mother Horror yeah. on Instagram, and and the Instagram Bookstagram community in general kind of embraced it. I, I you know, and it got sent out to them. Um, we did all the marketing ourselves, pretty much. Um, my agent and I, I say we. Uh, I have a, a great agent who is very on top of things, and um, she she basically provided Skyhorse with the the spreadsheet of people to send it to, and um, you know they all got copies. So um, so yeah, like I think the book had a good first life as a hardback, and because it also had a paperback publication in the UK, which is what ultimately got me to. Um, Edinburgh for the book festival there in 2018. So from 2017, when it came out to 2018 for about a year, it had a pretty good steady run of, um, recognition. And then, uh, things kind of quieted down for about three or four months after that until March of 2019, when they put it back out. And I think that probably corresponds with, um, you know, some, uh, changeover in Skyhorse's business model or whatever, you know, I think there was some kind of slight upheaval there or something. I, I don't know much about it, but, um, but yeah, just grateful. It, it's still around. Well, fantastic. Um, well, would you mind just kind of giving the audience just a little bit about uh, in the Valley of the sun, just so they can kind of whet their appetite on what you write. Sure. Um, the pitch for in the Valley of the sun that I worked up, um, which was sort of my elevator pitch was it's taxi driver meets tender mercies by way of near dark. Uh, so basically if you, you pull that apart, you've got a serial killer who finds his way into the hearts of, uh, a widowed mother and her son who, um, are running a motel in the middle of the Texas desert and they take this stranger in and the stranger is of course not what he seems um and there's another character in the book named rue who as the book opens is um one of travis's would-be victims who sort of fits his mo as a serial killer but she quickly turns the tables on him and uh he begins this transformation based on his encounter with her into something uh, much more monstrous than than even what he was. So that's kind of the the summary, I guess. Yeah. And it's it's got a a bit of a it's a mix of genres. I'd say it's kind of noir. It's kind of uh, it's kind of um, a western. It's a horror novel. It's it's a bit of a crime novel. There's a Texas Ranger who's pursuing him for his past crimes and isn't even aware of the, the horrors that he's actually going to stumble upon. So, yeah. Yeah. I'd say it has, uh, I guess a little bit of like a no country for old men vibe, with like a supernatural mm. edition. Um, I read no country for old men many times. While I was writing this <laughs> I'm not saying like it's a direct influence, but like, you know, you can, it, it's got the, you know, the Texas vibe and the kind of the, uh, you know, officer going after the serial killer and right. trying to track oh, yeah. him down. And I'll say it, it is a directive. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. But, uh, but it, it was a fantastic read. Like I said, I, I just finished it up, uh, yesterday, um, after unfortunately having it for quite a while, but, um, <laughs> I mean, you know, kind of, like I said, in the opening, it was a finalist for the 2017 Bram Stoker award for superior achievement in the first novel. It was a runner-up for the 2017 This Is Horror Novel of the Year Award, finalist for the 2018 Falcon Award, Silver Falcon Award, sorry, nominee for the 2018 Edinburgh International Book Festival First Award. And then on top of that, you get starred reviews from Booklist and Publishers Weekly. And then, of course, you know, Sadie Hartman gives the super sweet review in Cemetery Dance Magazine, among several other reviewers that were reviewed it and posted it on Bookstagram. I mean, I remember, I think when she first got that, I saw it and I go, all right, I've got to find out who's publishing this book. Cause I've got to go request it. 
Um, and so I, I kind of joined in on the on the whole put you know, blasting it all over uh, Instagram. So, um, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Uh, so, so now uh, on to book your 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 sophomore novel, The Boatman's Daughter, which comes out in February. Um, right. Just a little uh, early stuff on it. We've already got a Kirkus review calling it a stunning supernatural Southern Gothic. And then you've got a, a great review from Booklist um, that says that it claims a rightful place alongside Southern Gothic classics of the 21st century. So we've already got some pretty big stuff there. And then I've seen uh, you've, you've had a couple of blurbs here recently from Paul Tremblay um, and uh, Philip Fricasi. So I was like, man, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty good start, you know, for a book that didn't come out for a couple of months. Uh, and, uh, and I've already started reading it and it, it, it gives me a little bit of a uh, Valley vibes just, just with the way it's written. Um, Cause mm-hmm. your writing style is, is very unique. So um, I, I definitely like that, but, uh, and I'm pretty sure, sh- you know, I've already obviously gotten through what you read at the Noir event, which um, I mean, sets it up perfectly. So if anybody hasn't listened to the Noir, uh, Noir bonus uh, episode from a couple of weeks ago, definitely read that or listen to that. Uh, cause his little glimpse into the boatman's daughter was phenomenal. But, uh, for those who just decided to kind of come into this blonde, uh, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and going through and tell us a little bit about the boatman's daughter. Yeah, this is the part I dread with this book because <laughs> when I was trying to craft a summary of this book to send when someone finally picked it up, uh, or actually, I guess it was before it was even picked up. I was talking with my agent about how to summarize what the book is, and it's, it's incredibly hard. Um, so I'm, I'm just going to like look at what the book actually says. <laughs> so this is the copy that was written by my publisher. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of, I won't read it, but um, basically it's the story of Miranda Crabtree, who lost her father at a very young age. Uh, she lives on a river in an Arkansas uh, bayou, and um, she has kind of scraped by ever since her father was lost, um, ferrying um, drugs upriver for uh, a mad preacher and um, his kind of band of followers who are defunct now. Uh, it's kind of a, a former cult, you know, on the river. and. Um, and she's also got the task and the burden of protecting um, a witch that lives in the swamps and a child that she has been keeping secret all these years, uh, which is not her child. Um, but anyway, there's there's basically a moment in the story where Miranda has to make a choice that she's confronted with that will set her on a path of um, vengeance or... Uh, reckoning, I would say, um, with regard to her past and her future. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's kind of a stew of things. It's a, it's a swampy Southern Gothic. It's, um, it's a story about uh, a young woman whose life has been, you know, upended by trauma and loss. Uh, it's the story of what happens when, um, Religion is kind of perverted for nefarious ends by greedy preachers. Um, and there's a good bit of supernatural in it as well. You know, we got a witch, we got a, a boy who's kind of a, a half boy, half fish. So um, there's a lot in it. <laughs> <laughs> it is, there's definitely a lot to unpack. And uh, I, I think he, I think he did it justice for, 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 you know, for not directly reading it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, would, I, I, you know, I make that joke, but I mean, it, it, when I, when I was writing it, even, I remember feeling like I, I didn't know if any, if this was going to make sense to anybody <laughs> but me. So I was very, very happy when a publisher actually said, we like this book. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so why, why horror? I mean, there, you've got all these genres out there. Uh, was it something that struck you at a young age that you wanted to write horror or did you just start writing one day and you're like, okay, maybe I can, I can twist this a little bit and make it a little scary. Well, I don't know if it was a young age necessarily, but I mean, I did, I do remember obviously most 
horror writers that you asked this question of are going to say that they remember if they're within my age, um, they're going to say they remember reading Stephen King as a kid. And I did. Um, but I also have a memory of my first memory of horror is really, um, Dean Koontz's book watchers, um, which again is kind of a lot of things. It's not just horror, it's science fiction. It's, it's a suspense novel. Um, and if, if you or your listeners haven't read it, I mean, it's, it's one of his older books, but it's a fantastic book. Um, there was a period when Dean Koontz was really knocking him out of the park. Um, but I remember my mom, it's funny how my parents both influenced this. My mom was telling me about this book. Uh, we were going to see my grandparents and we were in the car and she was telling me about this creature that was in the book that, uh, when it kills people, it, it pokes out their eyes because it doesn't want them to see how ugly it is and what it looks like. Hmm. And that just sort of struck me as really cool and yeah. scary and sad all at the same time. And I think that's what like great horror can be is horror for me is not about gross out violence. It's not about gore. It's not about, um, it's not about creating a reaction of disgust in the reader. It's about pity and, and pathos and monsters that make us feel those things. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but, but yeah, the other experience with horror with King was, was his book, it, I remember my dad uh, was a high school principal and one of the unfortunate tasks of a high school principal in a small town is every now and then you get someone who complains to them about a book that's in the library that shouldn't be there. (laughs) And um, one of those books was Stephen King's it, which had somehow somehow found its way under the shelf of the high school library. (laughs) And um, you know, I mean, I, I can't think of a reason why I wouldn't want that book in my library if I were a teenager, but I'm sure some parent didn't like it. You know, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I remember dad brought it home and he had never read it. He was a Stephen King fan. He'd read most of his books, but he hadn't read it at that point. And my dad being my dad was able to kind of make the decision, you know, about the book and its fate in the library as a separate part of the process of bringing it home and reading it, which also included just really loving the book. I mean, dad loved the book and he read passages out loud to, to us, uh, to me and my mom in the car. And one of them was the opening with Georgie and Pennywise and the sewer. And, um, that just scared the hell out of me and I loved it. And so there is that aspect of horror too, of just wanting to chase that feeling of, I can't look away from this and I'm terrified by it. And it's, it's kind of a white knuckled sort of compulsion to keep reading. Um, so I guess for me, horror, why horror horror is that genre that I most closely associate with reading, um, falling in love with reading. And so when I wrote in the Valley of the sun and it was a straight up crime novel without any supernatural elements in it, I took a step back from it and I didn't really respond to it. I didn't like it. And so I decided actually to go back to my roots as a reader and add in that layer of horror and the supernatural. And once I did that, the book really took off and I thought, well, that's it. I'm a horror writer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that, that's it. That, go ahead and uh, you know, take, take it to the bank. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah, see, I, I had kind of a similar um, experience with with older Dean Koontz books. Is uh, so my dad, uh, he read a little bit when I was growing up, and and I didn't really read a whole lot until probably about fourth grade. I just had a fantastic teacher in fourth grade that like encouraged us to read everything we could, and it kind of took off from there. But I kind of mm-hmm. started slowing down when I got to high school, and then my dad started working security for uh, the power company, and he. We have to get shipped off on storm duty. So like when Katrina hit and Rita hit, he would go off. And, but 
before he did, he would take his allotment or what, like whatever money they gave him for food and snacks and sleep, uh, like sleeping bags and stuff. He would go to the store and go to like Walmart and just grab like some paperbacks. And wow. he started, he started grabbing Dean Koontz paperbacks. So he mm. first, the first book he got was I think the second book in the Frankenstein series, uh, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. I think I've read that series now like three times. Um, but it's just, it's really good. It's, it's, it's newer, but it's, it's, it's still, I, I feel like vintage Koontz, mm-hmm. which now it's kind of, it's tapered a little bit. I haven't read a lot of his new stuff. Um, I know there's a, there's a market for it, but his old stuff really is where it's at. And so, oh, yeah. so my dad just kind of took off and would read it. He read every single book that, that Koontz had released up until that point and uh, was like, Hey, you need to read these. And so I started reading Koontz again. And then, he went through a phase of Stephen King. So then I started going through a phase of Stephen King and it just kind of went from there. So maybe if I ever decide to start writing horror, it'll be my genre too. <laughs> um, well, I've had people ask me the question. Um, you know, I have, I have some good friends who, you know, are much more conservative, I guess I would say, in their reading habits. And, and, and I've had them ask me, you know, that, that, there's an there's an icky association with horror in a lot of people's minds. If you write horror, you must be strange. You must be weird. I even had a woman say to me once in a reading uh, or in a book club meeting that I was a guest of, "Oh, you're you're the one with the deranged mind," <laughs> <laughs> which is really funny. If you know me, I I couldn't be less deranged. But um, but you know I. I had a friend ask me once, well, do you think you'd ever write anything like science fiction or, and, and I know that's kind of a coded question for why do you write something so unpleasant? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not really about wanting me to write a science fiction book. It's about wanting me to not write horror. Right. And I, I guess I kind of just, because of questions like that, I want to keep writing horror, you know? <laughs> Just despite them, right? <laughs> yeah, just despite them. I mean, I mean, I, I, and it's also, you know, like there is a part of me that's like, you know, I, I come from a conservative Christian background, like, you know, and, 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 and that's like not in any way informing my life now as a person really. But, you know, I was raised in a Baptist church and, and, um, you know, I'd love to write a book that would just horrify my childhood minister if he ever read it. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> so so guess, there is a part of me that does want to like, you know, I guess spite people. Sure. But, yeah. but you know, that's, it's not about shock and disgust. It's about finding real humanity in things that we don't normally see humanity in, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And it's probably not really a thing of being deranged. It's just, I, I don't, I think people who, aren't that creative wonder how creative people come up with their ideas. Um, and you know, how, how in the world do you come up with the idea of Travis and this, you know, in Valley of the sun or how, you know, do you come up with this whole idea of a young girl toting drugs up and down a river and protecting a witch? Like, it's just, it's like, where did that come from is, is probably what people really think. Um, right. And they just don't know how to portray that. So they're just that's like, a hard you're really weird. Answer. And that's why, like, <laughs> that's why writers hate that question, where do you get your ideas, is because there is no answer for that. It's like, well, they come from, they come from me. They come from my, my interests. They come from the things I like to read and watch films. They come from my subconscious. They come from fear. They come from love. It's, there's no one source or well that these things are drawn from, you know? So, yeah, I mean, I, I think about like within the Valley of the sun, part of what spurred me on that project was I was out in the backyard painting my fence, listening to music on my iPod. And I came across uh, Dwight Yoakam's song, a uh, honky tonk man. Uh, and it was just the first bars of that song. I'm a honky tonk man. I can't seem to stop. And I thought, well, that sounds like he's talking about a compulsion. And then suddenly I had this idea of cowboy who's a serial killer who goes to honky tonks and picks up women. And that just went from there. And 
you know, as far as the boatman's daughter goes, um, that was born out of like several different loves that I had. I, 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 I developed in recent years, a, a love for EC comics, those horror comics from the 1930s and forties, um, with like Graham Ingalls art, you know, really dripping goo and, and just great black puddles of ink on the page and, and such atmosphere. Um, and Swamp Thing, I've always loved Swamp Thing. Alan Moore's comic and Bernie Wrightson's art in, you know, Swamp Thing and, and also in like, um, you know, Cycle of the Werewolf by Stephen King, just that association with horror and, and, and art. And, um, and then, yeah, there was this, uh, in, in, I wanted to write something in my home state and in Falk, Arkansas, which is partly where I guess the book is based on, um, there was actually a religious cult whose leader was arrested for trafficking in underage girls. And I looked into that news story, which, which broke in the early 2000s, I think. Um, and I lived about an hour up the road from this place, mostly most of my life, hour and a half, and um, knew nothing about this. And I start looking into this guy. And he's like, he's done all of this weird stuff in his life. He's not just a preacher. He's, he's like a former country Western singer. And he's a, he was a fashion designer for country Western stars in Nashville in the 1980s. Uh, he had like a, a whole line of like denim rhinestone jackets or something. And he wore aviator glasses and, and had a big pompadour like Conway Twitty. And you just start digging into this guy's life and it's like, well, this is really interesting and weird. And so he kind of like things just start coming together disparately, you know, and you pull them together and suddenly you've got this narrative that's in your head. And I, I guess that's, that's why I always feel like I have a difficult time talking about what the book's about because it's about so much <laughs> in my mind, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, even I just, decided to Google Bobin's arm to see what the first thing that came up. And it says, uh, it's a supernatural cousin to, to Daniel Woodrell's gritty Ozark thrillers, a sensual wetlands fable, rich in sensory detail and replete with Slavic folklore. <laughs> right. I didn't even <laughs> mention the Slavic folklore. <laughs> I forgot about that. So I was like, man, this, this, this is unpacking everything. Oh man. Well, cool. I mean, obviously, we could we could sit here and talk about that kind of stuff all day. And I know uh, I know you've got stuff to get to, and we could talk obviously about Star Wars for for days. But um, just really, uh, anything you reading right now? Any authors that you can recommend that uh, that people need to be reading? I am reading right now The Ritual by Adam Neville. Um, I had seen the Netflix adaptation of that book and and had not read the book. And I thought the the film was great, and so I'm I'm reading that right now. I think he's a British writer. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The ritual is about four friends that go into the woods in Sweden and encounter some really scary stuff. It's great, um, and I'm I'm probably moving on from there to um, to Jeff Vandermeer, you know, and so. Uh, having having just recently finished Carmen Maria Machado's her bodies uh, her body and other parties, uh, so I've 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 had a string of good uh, good reading experiences. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah, and I agree. The ritual the the movie was fantastic. I've got the book and haven't haven't read it yet, but uh, I mean, I well, that's the story of our lives. Right. <laughs> I've got the book. I haven't read it yet. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, especially especially in, in you know blogging days, it's just like, uh, oh yeah, I've got that. I've heard it's really good. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've I've I think I've read now 170 books this year, and I still have like all these. I'm sitting there going, yeah, I haven't I haven't read that one. I've got it, but I'm sure I'll That's get to amazing. it at some point. Oh <laughs> uh, well, awesome man. Well, uh, I I. I, I I'm just humbled that you wanted to come on. Uh, I mean, I know. Oh. Look, I, I mean, it, it might it might not mean a whole lot to you, but it, it does to me. I mean, I, well, it means I, a lot that you asked me to be on here, but <laughs> I don't think you should be humbled. By my being here. I mean, you know, just just from 
meeting you for the first time and then all of a sudden you're like, hey, yeah, I'll be on the podcast. It's just, it's kind of awesome uh, that you do that. And the fact that, you know, you're, you're slowly becoming a, a go-to author now with, like I said, with your second book coming out in February. Um, but guys, uh, like I said, Andy's got a book out uh, in the Valley of the Sun. You can get it pretty much anywhere, um, especially with it now being re-released. And then uh, The Boatman's Daughter comes out February 11th of next year. Uh, that's one that I'm currently working on and should have a review here pretty soon. Um, and uh, I'm sure uh, I'm sure you've got some other stuff in the works uh, that we're definitely looking forward to. Um, but guys, I mean, if you, uh, if you need a good horror book uh, in your life, definitely uh, don't look any further than, than Andy's stuff. Um, and Andy, just again, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, and we'll definitely have to do this again sometime. It was a delight. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Hope you have a good one. You too. Thanks. I hope you guys enjoyed my chat with author Andy Davidson about his books in the Valley of the Sun and the upcoming The Boatman's Daughter. Stay tuned next Wednesday, Christmas Day, as I'll be releasing the episode I recorded a couple of weeks ago with Josh Mallerman. I'll also be releasing another episode next Saturday, the 28th, with author Gareth Ryder Hanrahan. We'll be talking about his release, The Gutter Prayer, as well as the sequel coming out January 7th called The Shadow Saint. It should be a fantastic time. Uh, thank you guys, as always, for tuning in, and I hope you guys continue to do so and enjoy the wonderful content I'm providing. <laughs>